God's word. This is Genesis 50:15-21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, "It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him." So they sent a message to Joseph saying, "Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Cadet. So my name is Jeff Kreisel. I'm the RUF campus minister at the United States Air Force Academy. Um, elephant in the room. I sweat quite profusely. Okay? It's going to get worse as the, uh, the sermon goes along, so sorry for the eyes door. Okay? Um, I know this morning that, um, that you've had a hard weekend as a church. I know that the Grace and Peace community... Um, as heavy hearts this morning um, after Tyler's funeral yesterday and everything else going on in your lives individually. Um, our passage this morning, it speaks into that. Okay? It speaks into our sorrow, it speaks into our brokenness, and it sings to our soul in the midst of hardship and trial. So I have the privilege of putting a nice bow on the, uh, on the end of the old Genesis series. Um, it's quite the privilege. Uh, it's actually funny. I was talking with Ben, and he, he asked me to preach um, for asking me to preach the passage of Genesis, and I was like, "Oh, great! I preached in Genesis three years ago. I, I'm going to be ready to go." And then he was like, "Oh yeah, we're going to do Genesis 50." That's like the one passage I didn't get to because we had a snow day at Yosafa, so I had some fun doing some stuff work this weekend. Um, I love this passage. It is such a well-known passage, and rightfully so. Um, Everything in Genesis has been leading to this moment, to this story, this interaction between Joseph and his brothers. All right? Everything in the Bible, or everything up to the first 50 chapters, right? A lot has happened in Genesis. Genesis is a crazy book. It covers so much ground. Thousands of years of redemptive history through the book of Genesis. So, since Genesis 1, a lot has happened, right? God created the heavens and earth and all that is in them. Right? He created Adam and Eve. Okay? He created man and female. They were created in his image after his likeness. There were to be vice regions in his world to rule on his behalf. But what did they do with this story that God has entrusted to them? They attempt to dethrone God by disobeying God. Not a good start. Right? Cain and Abel were born, and then Cain kills Abel. Noah builds an ark, and then Noah's descendants build a tower. God cuts a covenant with Abraham, and then Abraham sleeps with Hagar. And 
Sarah gives birth to Isaac, and then Isaac calls his wife, Rebecca, his sister, to save his skin. Right? Like father, like son. Okay? Abraham did this twice. The same thing. The son repeats the sins of the father. He denies that his, his own wife is his wife. Jacob and Esau are born. And then Jacob deceives Esau and steals his birthright. Rachel gives birth to Joseph, and then Joseph parades his rainbow robe around. He parades his father's favoritism around for his brothers to see. Then Joseph has divine dreams. Then Joseph is sold into slavery by his own flesh and blood. Joseph then turns down Potiphar's wife. Then Joseph gets thrown in prison. Pharaoh then makes Joseph his right-hand man, the second-in-command in all of Egypt. And then a famine occurs. And then Joseph's brothers kill him. And they meet with him. And that's what we get to see here in Genesis 50. Listen, thousands of years of redemptive history are covered in just this one book. And you guys have been working through this over the last few months, I believe. Um, and they're about to come to a dramatic conclusion here in chapter 50. And it is a conclusion that will beautifully point us forward to the story that will continue. Keep in mind, the book of Genesis doesn't end with a period, it ends with a semicolon. And the book of Exodus begins with a conjunction, it begins with a bar, it begins with an. Okay, it's one story that continues throughout. And in the semicolon at the end of Genesis, it shows us that yes, there have been a lot of hills and valleys throughout the book of Genesis. And it tells us that there are more hills and valleys that are going to come. Right? There's going to be more highs and lows throughout the redemptive, throughout redemptive history. There's going to be more tragedy. There's going to be more triumph. That's why we need Genesis 50, because it is like a sign on that road. With all the hills, with all the valleys, that says, do not fear. Covenant fulfillment is coming. Okay, the promised seed from Genesis 3 is coming. The end of sorrow is coming. You can keep on reading. The story continues. Alright? So our passage actually technically begins with the death of Jacob. Right? And I love Jacob, and I kind of despise Jacob. I see a lot of myself in Jacob, and um, I love his story, but it gets a little too close to home at times. Um, Jacob, if you recall was the deceiver, that is literally what the name Jacob means. Jacob was the deceiver who relied on his own strength, his own cunning to get ahead in life. Right? Literally from day one, Jacob was pulling on the heel of his, of his brother Esau, trying to pull Esau down in order to lift himself up. That's how you get ahead in life, you pull others down. So thought Jacob. This is the guy who stole Esau's blessing and his birthright, and then he tricked his uncle Laban to deceive him. This is the guy who wrestled with God from dusk to dawn, who had his hip dislocated, which is like the most excruciating injury from what I hear. He has his hip dislocated, he's limping for the rest of his life, and he is clinging to God in his weakness, saying, I will not let you go until you This guy was renamed Israel, a name which means God's place. And 
Jacob realized that he didn't have to rely on his own strength, his own cunning anymore to get ahead. He didn't have to pull others down to lift himself up because God had set his love on him. God would fight for him. Jacob became the father of seven sons who would become the fathers of the seven, the twelve tribes of Israel. Right? The twelve tribes of Israel which would play a really important role throughout redemptive history. Jacob is a very, very important figure throughout the Bible. So Jacob dies and his sons are heartbroken. They're mourning. And then they're up against this famine as well which is threatening um, all of the people. And so they flee to Egypt Lo and behold, as there's little old Jacob, he's alive. Not only is he alive, he's been exalted to the throne, right? He's the second in command. They see their little brother Joseph, arrogant, sitting on the throne. And they think to themselves, what's he going to do to us? What's he going to do to us after what we did to him? And they, they, they come to a, a, a fair assumption, right? They assume, uh, verse 17 tells us, they, they conclude it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Right? That's how things work. That's how the world works. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The brothers assume that Joseph is going to respond to them and is going to treat them the same way that they treated Joseph. Someone is wrong, justice demands retribution. If a person causes suffering, then that person deserves to suffer. Now, this isn't a foolish assumption. This is, a, this is throughout the Bible. God Himself says, God will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty, okay? This, this certainly includes the brother's guilt after what they did to Joseph. God would not let them go off without being punished. Okay, or so they thought. Listen, what the brothers did to Joseph was so evil. It was so depraved. Okay, let me give you guys a quick recap on what happened to Joseph. Alright? So first off, this is what the brothers do. They decide that they're going to kill Joseph. Alright? They're going to kill him. And then they're going to throw his body into an empty well. And then to cover their tracks, they're going to tell their dear father, Jacob, that Jacob was eaten by an animal. Right? Well, Joseph's big brother, Reuben, the great older brother, he steps into their murderous deliberation. And he goes, no, 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 guys. We can't kill him. Let's not kill him. If we kill him, then his blood would be on our hands. Let's just throw him into this cold, empty well, and we'll just leave him there forever. So we'll just let him starve to death. It's essentially the conclusion they come to. And then get this. This is crazy. This is where, like, the book of Genesis becomes the Godfather, all right? The brothers, after throwing Jacob into this cold, empty well, they go back home, they prepare dinner and they eat together as if nothing had ever happened. This is, this is nuts. Their brother is screaming. He's crying from this well. He's only 17 years old. He's crying from this well. They ignore his cries while they're eating supper. Okay? 
Well, it gets better. Right? You guys know the story? Judah, another great godly older brother, Judah realizes that Joseph's blood would still be on their hands if they throw him into the well and he starves to death. So what does Judah Judah comes up with a great plan. Okay, Judah's like, hey, we can't let him starve to death because then his blood would still be on our hands. Okay, we would still be guilty for his death. So let's sell him as a slave and then we can make some money as well. Right? So it's kind of a win-win for us. You know, we get rid of Joseph and we get some extra cash. And get this, his brothers actually like agree with him and they go along with this human trafficking plan. This is nuts. Okay, this isn't the Godfather, this is Genesis. Alright? Listen, Joseph's brothers were right to be afraid when they stood before Joseph in Sarah's court. They were right to be afraid. What they did was evil, and God will not clear the guilty. As annoying and arrogant as Joseph was as a kid, the brothers' acts went so above, they were so evil, so depraved, and so they realized they need to do something or their lives are going to be uh, taken from them. So they, they schedule a time to meet with Joseph. I imagine Joseph's schedule is probably pretty busy as the second in command of a, a major empire. So they get on his schedule, they get in front of him, and they give him this message. And it's got to be so awkward. Can you guys just imagine how awkward this scene must have been? They give a story to brother that they're so wrong, and they're essentially like, hey, great to see you again, little brother. Long time no see. How are things? It looks like you've, you've done pretty well with yourself, right? Well, so here's the thing, Joseph. You know that Dad died, right? It's really sad. We're all really heartbroken about it. Well, Dad told us to tell you right before he died that you need to forgive us. There's this dying wish, Joseph. You gotta honor your own father's dying wish. You have to forgive us. That's what Daddy wanted. Now I don't, I don't know if Jacob actually said this. Uh, some commentators think that he did say this. A lot of commentators think that he, Jacob, did not say this. Um, and so the brothers are having insults into it. They're blatantly lying to Joseph. Okay, they're hiding behind their dead father. Um, whether or not he said it or not, or whether he said it or he didn't say it, they're hiding behind their dead father. And they aren't exactly showing genuine remorse for what they did to their brother. Now, after hearing his brother's plea, Joseph, he's a clever one, right? He knows how things work. He knows how the world works. And so he calls in his guards, and they take his brothers, they beat them mercilessly. The guards then throw them into solitary confinement where they're in these nasty prison cells for about 10 years. And then after the 10 years, the brothers are freed so that Joseph can then sell them as slaves and make some money. That's what should have happened, logically. But that's not what happened. Not even close. Verse 17, it tells us this. After making the plea to Joseph, Joseph wept. 
he wept when I spoke to him. Now, why do you think that Joseph wept when his brothers were speaking to him, pleading for their lives? I don't know. Like, maybe there were some tears of joy because he reunited with his brothers. But given what they did to him, I think that's pretty unlikely. Okay? Or maybe he was just really upset that his father had passed away. He loved Jacob. Maybe that played a role in it. He's just weeping here. But I think there's much more going on here. I think that Joseph wept because he knew what he needed to do. He knew that he needed to break the retribution cycle. The eye for an eye. He needed to respond in a different way. Keller put it like this. He said, when you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself. All forgiveness is costly. Think that Joseph wept because he knew the cost of forgiving his brothers. You see, by forgiving his brothers, Joseph was refusing to let their wrongdoing receive the effect that it deserves. He was refusing to let that happen. In, in, in Hebrew, throughout the book of Genesis, the word for forgive is the word nasah, and it literally means to lift up or to carry on the back. So to forgive someone is to carry their wrongdoings as if they were your own, to carry them. Do not ask them to pay the debt that they deserve to pay, to take it upon yourself. To forgive someone is to carry their debt. And so I think that if Joseph looked at his brothers and he's reflecting on his life of sorrow and all the pain he went through because of his brothers, all of the tragedy that he's experienced, he is reflecting on the fact that they wronged him in such an evil way. And by forgiving them, he's taking their debt upon himself. Now just think for a second what Joseph went through. Okay, what his brothers put him through. Okay, first and foremost, he was betrayed by his own brothers. And his own flesh and blood. Joseph looked up to his brothers. Now, Joseph wanted to emulate his brothers when he was a kid. These were his role models. These were the same brothers that they likely took care of him when he was sick, when he was hungry. They probably cheered when he took his first step. They probably nursed his, his bloody knees after he fell. They probably read his bedtime stories. Joseph loved his brothers. And they betrayed him. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? Second, he was the victim of human trafficking. Now, I can't imagine a scarier thing happening than being sold as a slave. Being sold as a slave, not, know where, not knowing where you're going, not knowing what is going to be expected of you, not knowing what's going to happen to you or what's going to be done to you, Joseph was sold as a slave. 
He was a 17-year-old kid. In an instant, Joseph was ripped away from his home, everything he had ever known, and he's on a caravan to a foreign land all by himself. Third, he was wrongfully accused, and then he was thrown in prison. Right? Um, now, I know the prison conditions in our country are not the greatest, but can you just imagine for a second what the prison conditions were like about 4,000 years ago? Imagine what that was like. With no, no sanitation, no running water, there was no you know, water fountains, there was no air conditioning in the Middle East, there was no electricity, there was no books. This would have been miserable, a miserable miserable experience. And get this, many commentators believe that Joseph was in prison for 12 years. He was wrongfully in prison for possibly up to 12 years for something that he didn't even do. Fourth, he was put in charge of Egypt's uh, famine relief efforts. Which is, you know, now with COVID and with the wildfires in the West, I have, like, so much respect for the people who lead, like, various natural disaster responses. Um, can you imagine just the pressure that these people are feeling? The pressure that they're under to save lives, to make, to make sure literally that millions of people don't, don't contract the virus and die. You know, Joseph felt that same pressure. He felt that. Okay, Joseph was responsible for ensuring that millions of people didn't starve to death. Joseph is carrying all of this. Carrying all of this pain, all of this pressure, and this interaction with his brothers. And so he starts to weep because he realizes the evil that was done to him is not going to be repaid. Joseph went through some really uncomfortable trials. He went through some really difficult things. But as Joseph looks back and he considers his story as a whole, right? The story filled with triumph, filled with tragedy, filled with brokenness and beauty. He comes to this remarkable conclusion. I told the first service to play all as well. Genesis 50, verse 20. It's a good one to memorize. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, think about what Joseph is saying here. Think about the implications of what he just said. Okay, the brothers meant evil, but God is so big that he meant it for good. So, God, without being the author of sin, without being responsible for sin, he is so big, he is so sovereign, he is so wise that he can turn something like a negative human intention, this evil that was done to Joseph, and he can flip the script and bring out something positive. This is unbelievable. This 
this very mysterious, but it is astounding. It is unbelievable that God is this big. Is the God you worship this big? Is He this big? I pray that He is. Our God's perfect plans, they cannot be thwarted. Nothing can thwart His plans. Not evil brothers, not evil slave traders, not evil false accusers, not evil natural disasters, not even evil itself can thwart God's plan. God takes evil's best attempts to thwart His plans, and then He flips the script and He writes beauty into the brokenness. He turns tragedy into a song. He turns joy, He turns sorrow into joy, right? He transforms the desolate valley into a spring, a stream of living water. Listen, if our God is this big, if He is bigger than evil, then He can use it for His perfect purposes. And that means that our pain is not meaningful. That means that God can write beauty into our brokenness. But Paul could write in Romans 8, where we rejoice in our suffering. That is crazy. Paul is not. We're working through a series on the life of Paul. And Paul, his faith is just unbelievable that he could say we rejoice in our suffering. We rejoice in it because we know that God is using it to bring about endurance, to bring about character, and to bring about hope. So we rejoice. Now I know that many of you are hurting right now. Okay? I know it's been a hard weekend. And I don't even know the number. Right? Uh, what you guys are going through. I'm there with you, though, as far as the pain. It's been a long weekend. We're going to hold it together. The last service held it up. This is, you know, it's strong. Okay. Um, my, my wife is in Houston because her uncle passed away last week. So I've, been, I've had my kids with me, which is fun and crazy simultaneously. Well, yesterday afternoon, uh, late afternoon, I get a call from my dad that his brother had died, my uncle Dave. Then he asked me if I would preside over his funeral, which is on Wednesday in Pittsburgh. So I'm starting to think through what I'm going to say about my Uncle Dave. Now, my name is Jeffrey David Kreisel. was named after my uncle, David Kreisel. I've always been compared to my uncle. I've always looked up to my uncle. I only have two of them. And I'll always carry his name. And now I'm thinking about what I'm going to say Listen, this life is hard. There is death and there is brokenness and there is sorrow and there is so much pain and there is so much injustice and there are so many tears. We need Genesis 50 verse 20. We need this passage. We need it every single day. Listen, I don't know how I would get through a single day without this truth. But our pain is not meaningless. 
that God is good enough to write beauty into a broken, that He can turn tragedy and flip it upside down and make it a triumph. To quote Keller again, we love some Keller on the PTA, if you didn't know. It's pretty special to us. Keller says this, he goes, Christianity teaches that contra-fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Contra-Buddhism, suffering is real. Contra-karma, suffering is often unfair. But contra-secularism, suffering is meaningful. There's purpose to it, and if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. Listen, my friends, God is sovereign. He's bigger than you can imagine. He knows what he's doing. You know, once Joseph's brothers decided to sell Joseph as a slave, once they made this decision, there, there just happened to be a caravan that was passing by through their field at the exact right moment that was heading into Egypt. Once Joseph made it to Egypt, there just happened to be Potiphar's wife, a woman who falsely accused him and sent him to prison. And in this prison, he just happened to the translator interpret dreams of, of two prisoners, fellow prisoners. And these two prisoners just happen to be the chief butler and the chief baker, right, of the pharaoh, right? So he's got the chief butler and the chief baker, and he interprets their dreams. The butler is proven innocent. The baker, not so much. He gets hung by his neck. Okay, but the butler, he then goes and tells Pharaoh what Joseph has done. And then the Pharaoh pursues Joseph. And then Joseph interprets his dreams, and you know where the story goes from there. He's exalted to a throne. Listen, without Joseph's betrayal, there would be no Egypt. And without Egypt, there would be no Exodus. And without the Exodus, there would be no Mount Sinai. There would be no Mosaic Covenant. There would be no giving of the law. Without Mount Sinai, there would be no King David. And without King David, there would be no King Jesus. And without King Jesus, there would be no hope for people like you and me. You see, God knows what He's doing. He knows exactly what He's doing. The supreme example throughout the Scriptures God's sovereign ability to write beauty into the brokenness is the story of Jesus. It is the gospel narrative. Now get this. There's a lot of similarities between Joseph and Jesus, okay? Before Jesus was betrayed by his disciples, by his brothers, before Jesus was falsely accused, before he was falsely imprisoned, before he was falsely sentenced to death, before Jesus breathed his last breath on a cursed cross, Jesus pled with his hard heart and his father in the Garden of Gethsemane. He pled with God. He said, remove this cup from me. In Gethsemane, Jesus wasn't pleading with the Pharisees. He wasn't pleading with Pilate. 
For the centurion, he would then go on to nail his hands and feet to a cross. He was pleading with God the Father. Why? Because Jesus knew that the one who was giving him the cup was the one who loved him more than anything. And so Jesus continues his prayer. He says, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Jesus is praying, I trust you with my suffering. I don't understand it. He says straight up, remove this cup from me. Is there another way? But then Jesus says, I trust you with it. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're good. I know that you're perfectly wise. And I know that you love me. You love me eternally. And I know that you are the one who writes beauty into brokenness. And I know that you can turn this tragedy into a triumph to save the soul of the moon. Genesis 50 is a sign that points us to the gospel. It points us straight to the gospel. Joseph suffered unjustly, yet Joseph forgave unconditionally. In Joseph, he comforts. He then comforts his brothers unimaginably. Our passage ends with this verse. Joseph says this to his brothers. He says, Do not fear. I will provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm not just going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your kids. Thus, he comforted them. And he spoke kindly to them. Joseph spoke kindly. And he comforted his kids. Joseph points us to Jesus. Jesus is the brother who removed his heavenly robe, his heavenly rainbow robe, if you will. And he willingly put on a mocking scarlet robe on his open wounds on his back. And people spit into his face. Jesus is the brother who on the cross looks down at people like you and me. People who do not deserve his grace. He looked down at our sin. He looked down at our guilt. He looked down at our debt. And he prayed, Father, forgive me. Jesus is the brother who was thrown not just into a prison for 12 years. Jesus was thrown into a grave so that we could be thrown out of the grave. Jesus is the brother who is exalted to his heavenly throne on the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the one who showers us day after day after day after day after day after day. With God's undeserved, unearned, unconditional grace. Jesus is the brother we need, and he's the brother we thankfully have. C.S. Lewis once said that God shouts at us in our pain. And I love that image of God shouting at us in our pain. I was thinking about this phrase, it's like, what is he shouting? Because he is shouting, I think he's shouting something like this. He's shouting, I'm with you. I'm with you in your more in your sorrow. I'm with you in your pain. 
I feel it with you. I'm for you. I love you. You aren't alone in this. Your pain isn't meaningless. He says, I will provide for you. Not just you, but your children. I will care for you. I will comfort you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Because I have redeemed you. Because I have called you by name. Because you are mine. I love this quote from the song we sang. A mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled, to threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath will the truth to triumph through us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you knowing that you are sovereign, that you are good and perfectly wise, that you hold all things in the palm of your hand, including us. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, draw us near to yourself, that you would comfort us, that you would speak kindly to us, that we would feel our need for Jesus, that we would cling to the cross. We know, Lord, that we do not deserve your grace. We know that we have not earned your grace, but you have lavished your grace upon us day after day after day. We pray, Lord, that you would just rest in the finished work of Christ. Let's give you a hand and pray. Amen.